And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. There is no one who's written and spoken more provocatively about the institutions of Washington than Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. And there's no one who's become over four decades more of an institution in Washington, someone who is known to uh, every office holder, all journalists, someone who is quoted widely and who has in recent years written very, very directly about the threats that he sees to our democratic institutions that have only sharpened in the era of Trump. In fact, his latest book is called One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. Well, we both were slated to speak at the Kennedy Forum on mental illness, an issue that's touched uh, both our lives. It was an interesting conversation. Norm Ornstein, it's, it's great to be with you. you uh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, but before we talk about the, the obvious things that we must talk about, uh, I want to talk a little bit about you because... Uh, I learned a lot. I've known you for a long time, but I've yeah. learned a lot about you in getting ready for this discussion. Uh, didn't know that you were born in Grand Rapids, but not Grand Rapids, Michigan. Minnesota. Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And uh, tell me about your family. So my father was actually Canadian in origin, born in Quebec City, and grew up in Thunder Bay, which is right on uh, uh, Lake Superior, moved to Minnesota. Met well, where did his family come from? His family was Romanian. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they came to Canada. He was born there. Uh, he moved to uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which is uh, in the northern part of the state. Uh, and uh, had a, a little men's clothing store with a partner. My mother, who was in Minneapolis, her family had come from Russia and uh, had moved to an even smaller town called Virginia, Minnesota, before moving down to Minneapolis, where my grandfather uh, became a terrific labor leader and actually mm. ran the Laundry Workers Union and was one of the kitchen cabinet that got Hubert Humphrey into politics and wow. running for mayor. Uh, but my mother had a cousin in Grand Rapids and uh, fixed uh, her up with uh, my father. And they didn't stay there long. Uh, my brother and I were born there, uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, known as the birthplace of Francis Gum. Judy Garland. Uh, uh, you know, one of the you're one of the few people who. Well, uh, I've got good research. You know that. Yeah. Um, and then we moved around a fair amount. My father basically was a traveling salesman, and we traveled. And we lived in uh, Minnesota, mostly in the little Jewish suburb called St. Louis Park. Mm -hmm. But I spent a good part of my Where formative Al life. Where Al from. Al Franken, Tom Friedman, and the Cohn brothers, mm -hmm. uh, among others. And uh, the uh, former coach of the Chicago Bears. Uh, uh, Mark Tressman. Mark Tressman. Yes. Um, and... Uh, uh, we moved to Canada, and I went to uh, some parts of elementary school in Toronto, uh, junior high school in Moncton, New Brunswick, and then uh, Winnipeg for high school, uh, where I was uh, telling your team I was in high school with Neil Young. Ah, yeah, so you've had a lot of brushes with greatness. Uh, a Zelig-like uh, <laughs> experience. So, so let me, uh, I, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to ask yeah. you about that, but in you, you mentioned your, your grandfather's uh, labor 
Uh, and, and of course, yeah. in Minnesota, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party yeah. uh, is was a great progressive force. Did you um, did you know Hubert Humphrey? Did you know all those players yeah. from the DFL? I did, uh, and my uh, uh, mother's family. Um, she was one of seven. And her younger brother uh, ended up in the state legislature in Minnesota and then actually ran for attorney general uh, one time. And I kind of grew up uh, with Humphrey as my family's idol, and I got to know him uh, when I was a little bit older. And I also got to know uh, Walter Mondale mm-hmm. and Orville Freeman mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a host of others. And uh, my first experience in Washington was actually working for Don Fraser, right. uh, who was one of the great progressive leaders uh, uh, who led the uh, revolution in the House that transformed it in the 1970s. You so know, I grew up you know, around an incredible set of public servants uh, in the DFL. But I would also say that the Republicans at that time were people I admired enormously. The Minnesota Republicans were terrifically focused on doing things for people. They were moderates. And there was an ethos in the state that was just remarkable. Well, that was once true throughout the Midwest. I mean, Republicanism in the Midwest was very moderate uh, Republicanism. When I was a young reporter, um, I covered a lot of governor's races around Lee Dreyfus in Wisconsin yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, the Millic- uh, uh, Millican in uh, Michigan yeah. and Bob Ray in Iowa. And these, these were all, and, you know, obviously Jim Thompson was in that mold here in Illinois. That was a little later. Then. Yeah. But, but there was something about the Midwest that um, produced kind of these, these moderate, uh, Republican yeah. George Romney, uh, yeah, in Michigan. of course George Romney, uh, and I actually uh, uh, had a chat with Milliken's son in yeah. Washington in December. A uh, really terrific guy, and uh, we talked about his dad, who was another one of those uh, heroes. Great environmentalist. And now you look at the Republican Party in uh, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, Scott Walker in Minnesota, where they have become radicalized. And you realize that uh, maybe that was, and I saw that in Minnesota going back maybe 20 years, a little bit of the uh, cliched canary in the coal mine, that when states like that could go rogue, um, that you had a party that was in danger of entirely collapsing away from its norms. We, we, I want to get into that before I leave uh, your, yeah. the, the, your childhood experience. Uh, no, the, the reason I asked you about Humphrey was I had this extraordinary experience when I was a young reporter. I called in one night, and I loved my work. I was on the night side at the Chicago Tribune. It was, uh, I think, 1977, and mm. they, I, I called in sick. The only time I ever called in sick— and I really was sick. And they said, um, that's too bad because uh, Hubert Humphrey is, is, is appears to be dying, and we wanted you to go up to Minnesota to cover that. I said, forget it, I'll go. And I went. I got deathly ill covering it. But, yeah. uh, but the thing that struck me was that everybody I met that weekend in Minnesota said, had a personal story about Hubert Humphrey. The man had a personal relationship with an entire state, and people and he and people would say, and, and they didn't have the connections that you had through your family, but just everyday people who said, 
Yeah, I remember old Hubert. He always he he always asked me about my family by name, and he remarkable relationship he had with the people of that state. Uh, he was extraordinary, um, uh, truly a giant in so many ways, and uh, I even to this day uh, think that if he had won. If it hadn't been for that whole uh, set of events in 1968 that were so disastrous, including so many here in Chicago, uh, that the course of the country would have been very different. But that Humphrey, you know, who was, uh, as so many before him, had been humiliated in the vice presidency, would have been a great president and would have brought the moral standard of this country to a completely different level. All you have to do is go back and read that incredible speech he gave at the 1948 Democratic For Convention. For civil rights. Which was, I think, in some ways, uh, a speech that, if there had been television, would have vaulted him at that point into the kind of position that Barack Obama uh, found himself in uh, after the speech in Boston. Yeah. It was that good. Yeah, and it was... Uh Really, a harbinger of the sort of cleavages that we, yeah. we would see in the country and in the Democratic Party, the Dixiecrats walked out of that convention. Strom Thurmond, uh, but uh, but Humphrey won the day with the power of of his speech. He was the young mayor of Minneapolis at the time. So, speaking of prodigies, uh, I also learned that you. Uh, you graduated from high school at 14. You graduated from college at 19. You had your Ph.D. at 24. I mean, what's up with that? So uh, it was mostly, in, in some ways, just an accident of where I lived. We moved to Toronto, and in Toronto they had this program uh, in elementary school where if you were uh, proficient at the things that mattered at that stage, math and reading, they would move you up. Uh, if you weren't, they might hold you back. So I ended up taking fourth and fifth grades in one year. Then we moved to uh, New Brunswick, and they had a tiny experimental program of uh, doing ninth and tenth grades in one year, and I did that. And then we moved to Winnipeg, where uh, the 11th grade was the equivalent of uh, the senior year of high school. And so I just sort of skipped three grades. It's got to be hard, though, just emotionally yeah. hard. Um High school uh, was a traumatic time for me. Uh, I had to lie about my age. And I have an older brother, three years older, and we ended up in the same grade. Uh, and it was tough for him, too. Yeah, I bet. Fortunately, he was a star athlete, and so he had his own path, uh, and he was really good to me. Going that wasn't that an avenue open to you, I assume. It was not. Uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, he's a smart guy, too, but the gene pool didn't give me that talent, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, and what what prompted you to uh, become a political scientist? So I went to the University of Minnesota, and uh, we had moved back and lived in St. Louis Park. And as the majority of people who went to school there, Norma School, uh, I lived at home and commuted. And uh, uh, but I found a niche, and a lot of that niche was in the political science department. And uh, I had many mentors there. Uh, one of them uh, was somebody you may have known, uh, Gene Eidenberg. Mm -hmm. uh, and Gene, who had actually taught at Northwestern uh, and had spent a year as a congressional fellow working on Capitol Hill for Hale Boggs, um, and came back to teach his first job uh, at we the University of We should say for the people who don't know that Hale Boggs was the majority leader 
of of the house and tragically died on a campaign trip to alaska uh and uh uh, his daughter, of course, uh, uh, his mother, uh, or his wife, I should say, Lindy Boggs, uh, but, uh, you know... Uh, and also Koki Roberts. His daughter, Koki Roberts, uh, uh, quite a famous uh, journalist uh, mm-hmm. as well. Um, but he taught classes and sort of brought Washington alive for me, and I decided at that point that I would not only... I actually didn't major in political science. I sort of worked through the seams. I had an interdepartmental major so I could focus on a bunch of things and not have to take a lot of these terrible requirements. <laughs> um, but I decided I'd go to graduate school. And another mentor, a professor named David Repass, had uh, uh, come from the University of Michigan and pushed it. And so I ended up there. Uh, it was weird, but actually, you know, going back to my high school experience. So at 18, I arrive as a graduate student at the University of Michigan. And those years were like a college experience for me. So I at least had that uh, equivalent. And then I came to Washington in 1969 uh, after I'd finished my coursework as a congressional fellow. And I worked for Fraser for the first half of the year. And then I worked for George McGovern doing party reform and uh, ending the Vietnam War. It was a little bit of a lag, but we mm-hmm. managed to make it happen. Yes. Um, one of our uh, the people I uh, ended up working a lot with at that time uh, on ending the war was a New York moderate Republican senator named uh, Charlie Goodell. Right, who lost his seat over it. Lost his seat over it. We should, we should say, for those who don't know, he was appointed to replace Robert Kennedy when Robert Kennedy yeah. was assassinated and then lost his seat because uh, some of the conservative in the conservatives and Republican Party broke away and voted for a third party candidate, uh, James Buckley, who ended up winning the the, the seat. And uh, uh, Goodell was a courageous man. Uh, his son, Roger, not so much. Right. Uh, Who's the, the NFL commissioner, commissioner of the NFL. Yes. yes. Um, uh, so so. Uh, what interests me about you is that you you went through you got your PhD and I want to come back to McGovern and the party yeah. rules but you got your PhD you got a job at Catholic University in uh, in Washington yes not uh, on the basis of your religious affiliations I assume uh, exactly uh, so <laughs> yes but um, but the uh, but you you are not. And did not become uh, then a kind of traditional academic. Explain yeah. that. So, and it, it, what's uh, I, I would say fascinating. Some others might not think so. Um, I was stunned when I started to teach uh, at Catholic U in Washington uh, because I had been immersed in politics, and here I was in the nation's capital and had these opportunities. How many political scientists? Uh, living and working in Washington could just as easily have been in Peoria or Sioux Falls uh, or anywhere else in the country. It didn't matter to them where they were, and it did to me. And I learned early on as well, um, I was sitting, uh, I was living in a little uh, apartment on Capitol Hill, 
I was at the laundromat uh, doing my laundry one day, and I had read a book by, a at that point, a former congressman named Andy Jacobs from mm-hmm. Indiana, who had served on the committee that uh, had tried to work out what to do about Adam Clayton Powell, who was, of course, this legendary Harlem congressman, a powerful man, who ended up being expelled from Congress and then got reelected and came back, and Congress wanted to expel him again. Uh, it was a famous Supreme Court yes. case. In the end. And the Powell Committee was something uh, that uh, had fascinated Andy Jacobs, and he wrote a book about it, a really good book. And I read the book while I was sitting there, and just on impulse, I wrote a review. How long did it take you to do your laundry? (laughs) Either you're a fast reader or you don't do your laundry right. (laughs) I didn't start it and finish it, although back then it took a long time to do laundry. Um, But uh, I I just wrote a review out in longhand and sent it to the Washington Post. And three days later, they published it on the front page of the style section of the paper. And I got like $75. And I'd spent most of my time working on uh, an article for a political science journal, which at the time you would send it in, and maybe eight months later you'd get a letter back saying, uh, we like this, but we want some changes. And then you'd do a little back and forth, and maybe they'd say they'd publish it after a year, and then a year later it would be published, and it would be read by 700 people if you were lucky. And here I was writing something that was read by many, many thousands, published a couple of days after I'd uh, written it, and I got paid for it. Not just many, many thousands, but many, many thousands in the capital city. Exactly. Uh, People who were actors in the political drama that that, that political scientists uh, theorize about. And I got feedback. Um, And so I continued to do the academic work, um, but I got more involved uh, with uh, writing things mostly for the Post at that point and for their Outlook section over a number of years where I could do a little public education. And then in 1973, when uh, the Watergate hearings began to bubble up, 73, 74. We didn't have cable television. We didn't have uh, 24-hour news networks. And public broadcasting was the only outlet that televised those hearings. Yeah, gavel to gavel. And I got a call. Uh, Paul Duke uh, mm-hmm. and Jim Lehrer and Robin McNeil were These are, the for anchors. those who don't know, these are all legendary names in, 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 in broadcast news and political reporting. And they called because they wanted to have commentators and analysts. And so I began to do some television. And then I began to do more on what was uh, then, right at the beginning, the McNeil Report and then the McNeil-Lair Report that became the News Hour. And I ended up as the most frequent guest in the first 30 years on that show. And so I had a kind of public role that also played into my interactions with people in the political world. And I was unusual as an academic in that I really got to know and spend time with most of the people who were engaged in politics and governance at that time. Were uh, you? Uh, let me ask you a question about that. Among your fellow academics, did that tarnish your credentials? Yeah, uh, certainly for many of them. Uh, The world, thankfully, has changed. 
for a, a significant number, you were uh, kind of demeaning the profession if you did anything that was intelligible to any except uh, the academic uh, elite, and it was a waste of time. Um, fortunately, my uh, colleagues in my department didn't feel that way. And I did enough academic work that it wasn't so much of a problem. Uh, one other anecdote here that sort of gets back to the Zelig business. Uh, so after I taught at Catholic University, uh, I taught in Italy for a year before coming back. And my very best friend from graduate school had been teaching at the University of Oregon. I managed to get him a job uh, teaching in my department. And his then wife, who had been getting a PhD in French literature at the University of Oregon, uh, they came to Washington, and we needed to find Rana a job. And I used some of my connections and friends and got her a job as the personal assistant to a largely unknown figure who had just taken over the chairmanship of the House Judiciary Committee named Peter Rodino. Mm-hmm. And uh, soon thereafter, he became a household word. But uh, yeah, the job because that— Because of the impeachment— the job that Rana Freiberg had um, was uh, to not just do his appointments, but to sort of be with him. He left his family in Newark, where he was from. He had a little efficiency apartment in southwest Washington. And she had to be there with him all the way through the day and then, you know, uh, get him home and sometimes have dinner with him. And when the impeachment thing hit, uh, the three of us were actually sharing a house together on the hill. And my friend Michael Robinson and I would go down to the office in the evenings and we'd hang out. And throughout the House Judiciary hearings, often at the end of the day, eight or nine o'clock at night, Rodino would come out and say, let's go get a bite to eat and, and then go home. So I was, I was able to, and then he would debrief Man, us on what was going on. anything yeah. to be in that position? Yeah. Uh, so it was just a, a remarkable uh, serendipity. Uh, but I saw uh, this historic impeachment process, you know, from a vantage point that had its own uh, blinders or biases. But uh, Rodino didn't have anybody else he could uh, talk to candidly about what was going on. And it was uh, just uh, like every night we'd pinch ourselves. uh, Let's take a short break. We'll be right back with Norm Ornstein. So you were talking about Peter Rodino, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who conducted, famously conducted these impeachment hearings uh, uh, and the impeachment proceedings against uh, President Nixon, and you were you were there. You were you were yeah. sort of uh, not a consigliere, but you were you were a sounding board for him. But you're also doing media. Yeah how how do you how much of that information that you that he shared with you were you free to share with the world? I didn't share it all. Um, I saw this as a kind of sacred thing. He is opening up to us, and it wasn't my role to uh, spread that to anybody. And it was, it was tacit, but it, there was an understanding that this was all off the record. Now, you know, uh, the larger context of what I was learning um, helped me mm-hmm. uh, when I would talk about it. Uh, but, um, but I, you know, never 
uh, gave any of the juicy details about his relationship with Speaker Tip O'Neill or the other Democrats or Republicans on the committee or the pressure he was getting or what he heard from the White House. I will say also it was interesting because you would not have seen Rodino before this as an extraordinary figure. Uh, he was an average member of Congress. Uh, one of these people who'd been part of a machine politics and had become chairman of the committee because he'd stuck around for a long time. Uh, Not an intellectual by any standard. And you wouldn't have said, uh, you know, a political mastermind. But this was one of those cases, and people wrote about it in the aftermath, and it's also a little bit cliched, but it's true. He rose to the occasion. He saw that he had a different burden and that this was something very different than the country had experienced in his or our lifetimes. And uh, he did an extraordinary job uh, as a consequence. And I think history will judge him that way. I, I want to follow up on this, but I, I want to deal with one last bit of housekeeping. You you left Catholic University. You left in protest. Yeah. Uh, what happened there? And how did you end up at the American Enterprise Institute, which is generally identified as a conservative yeah. think tank? So uh, I taught for 13 years or so, and I was a tenured full professor, uh, and I had an enormous amount of freedom as these things uh, go. I could teach what I wanted, when I wanted. I had some extraordinary students, by the way, um, uh, that I can get to. Uh, I'm sure you, based on what I've already heard, I'm sure you've several historic so, figures were. Tom Donilon uh, uh, yes. uh, was my best student from the first morning of the first day of his freshman year all the way through his four years. and Former National Security former Advisor. Former National Security Advisor. And Michael Robinson and I, uh, uh, Rana Freiberg, uh, his uh, uh, wife, had moved from Redino into the Carter White House. And when Tom was going to graduate, he asked whether he should just go to law school uh, right away or do something else. We said, you should go out for a year or two. Got him a job, kind of a menial one in the Carter White House. Within a year, he was uh, the chief delegate counter. For, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a Tom's brilliant, a brilliant guy. Brilliant yes, man. I, I got, I, we, yeah. we worked together close. Terry McAuliffe and Ed Gillespie, yes. uh, both students. Mitch Landrew. Uh, who is one of the... You're naming the whole roster of former Axe Files guests here. And Mitch, uh, I have enormous respect and affection for, and I'm uh, could? Do you think that he could run for president in 2020? I've said not entirely facetiously that my dream ticket uh, would be Mitch Landrew and Greg Popovich. Yes, uh, but uh, I Popovich think, has taken himself out of. Uh, I of know, the mix, but, but maybe we can uh, draft him. Uh, uh, but uh, and if not Steve Kerr, I'd be okay with Steve Kerr. I've talked uh, to him about that too. <laughs> Another uh, former X Files yeah. guest. Uh, but Mitch, uh, I think. Uh, would actually be a terrific candidate and a terrific president. The way he is brought together black and white in uh, New Orleans. Well, he was lieutenant governor of a uh, very rural state uh, in Louisiana, and he's been the mayor of a 60% African-American city. And the ability to traverse those lines as as he has and to speak to uh, the full community is pretty extraordinary. I, I agree with you. I think he he. I, th- I consider him a serious prospect uh, yeah. should he decide uh, to do it. But just to put yeah. the button on yeah. the story, yeah, you 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 left in protest because one of your female 
colleagues yeah. was dealt with unfairly. So this was a woman who was a, a political theorist and very good, and uh, we uh, the department recommended her overwhelmingly for promotion and tenure at the time. The uh, standard was that was automatic that she would get it, and the university denied her, and we were stunned. And when I investigated, I realized that the chairman of the department had gone around everybody's uh, backs and had uh, done this in the most unfair fashion uh, to uh, screw her for all the wrong reasons, uh, screw her over for all the wrong reasons. And I decided, even though I wasn't particularly close to her, but it offended me so much that I would become her advocate inside the university. Uh, they didn't handle it well, and I said, screw you, and I quit. And you ended up at AEI. Yeah, and I had, uh, a few years earlier, uh, in 1978, Tom Mann uh, mm-hmm. and I, and we've no, done another fine many books together, uh, uh, had gone to AEI, which was just starting to expand a little bit, and uh, said... Um, how about if we create a little entity called the Congress Project? Nobody tracks Congress as an institution, how it's changed, what impact it has on uh, policy, how the elections go and the like. And uh, they said, sure. And so I did it as a, on a part-time basis. And then when I quit, I went there full-time. The place six months later almost went under because uh, the then president had uh, built an enormous amount of debt and uh, they were ready to go into Chapter 11 or its equivalent. And I thought, now I've really done it. (laughs) Um, But I hung on and I've been there ever since. I've actually been there longer than anybody else. And I was... Uh, always a bit of an outlier. Um, you know, my politics have been, uh, well, I used to uh, use the phrase that uh, Al Gore had created, raging moderate, um, not a, a particularly partisan figure, um, uh, but I was not a conservative and never have been, and not a Republican and never have been. Um, and uh, they provided a home for me where, through all this time, I've been able to do what I want, write what I want, say what I want, set my own agenda, and uh, there's an enormous amount of freedom, more freedom than I've seen in any university, I mm-hmm. will say. Now, uh, and it's worked to my advantage as it has, I think, to theirs. Undoubtedly. Um, so you, we've already established that you were... Uh, kind of an institution, you are and were a kind of an institution in Washington, but you also are an institutionalist. Uh, And, you know, you look at your early writings, uh, and what you see is someone who has a great deal of reverence for both politicians and and the system of, uh, you know, of democracy. Um, I want you to... uh, so there were a couple of things that that uh, that struck me that you uh, said um, earlier, because I want to trace what's happened to these institutions that you've been charting for the last 40 years. But you said you were involved in the McGovern uh, yeah. Commission, which reformed Democratic Party. It was really democratized to, some, to a great degree, the nominating process yeah. of the Democratic Party. I know that you've been a proponent of campaign finance reform over the years, and I've philosophically associate myself with those things as well. But I also wonder, uh, is it possible to over-reform? Is it possible that in pushing for reforms, you end up diluting institutions that you need 
to make the system work. Of course it is. And I think you could make the case that the uh, party reforms uh, done in the aftermath, really, of the 1968 uh, debacle in Chicago, uh, but also not just because of that. There were all these sea changes occurring generationally in the Democratic Party and in both parties, um, but that those reforms uh, went too far. Uh, they took uh, too much power away from those who had a strong stake in the party in an attempt to move away from uh, the legendary smoke-filled rooms and what was a fair amount of corruption in the process. Uh, you know, I remember when uh, John Connolly uh, was a Democrat and uh, manipulated the process in Texas so that the Texas delegation to the Democratic Party was basically filled with people who were simply henchmen for Connolly. And if he didn't have them all, they then had something called the unit rule, where if a majority of a delegation says they're going to take a particular position, the mm-hmm. entire delegation has to. And it was not used well, for party other leaders, right purposes. So we're sitting in Illinois, party leaders throughout the country, yeah. strong party leaders use those uh, tools in ways that sometimes were uh, were, were brutal and... Uh, ill-conceived, and, and and sometimes those smoke-filled rooms produced extraordinary leaders. Yes, and uh, I think uh, what we had was a set of reforms that went too far, and mm. we're still dealing with some of the aftermath of that. Um, I actually worry now that uh, there's a push by the Bernie Sanders forces uh, to move even further in that direction, uh, because we have seen adjustments made along the way after that set of reforms of the McGovern-Fraser Commission, a series of others. And, you know, we have to keep in mind that there's no panacea here, and the structures don't automatically give you either great people or lousy people. The uh, old uh, party uh, boss system gave us some great leaders and gave us some clunkers uh, and some corrupt people. Mm -hmm. And the new system uh, did pretty much the same thing uh, uh, with maybe a different mix uh, and a different quality. But uh, we've made adjustments back where you at least provide some role for those who've spent time in the party vineyards. Super delegates. And away from uh, uh, those who are more ideologically extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know, away from uh, what could be a a kind of chaotic process. And you could argue that what the Republicans had this last time reflected that chaos. And Democrats who may have 20 candidates in 2020 uh, need to be very much aware of that. Uh, Now, on campaign finance reform, I wouldn't say quite the same thing. I don't think uh, the reforms in which I had a a hand in helping to craft, uh, so I have a bias, But they were very targeted and aimed at uh, abuses. And uh, when you had, we had a brief period after the Supreme Court uh, affirmed uh, the, what was known as McCain-Feingold, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, where we actually saw a Democratic Party, for example, that had done nothing to build a base of small donors, now began Mm -hmm. to do just that. Uh, And we actually saw parties that had had soft money that was supposed to go for party building that was just channeled right through into issue ads. And the local organizations had atrophied, and we actually saw some buildup. Then along came John Roberts and Citizens United and blew that up. And we're now seeing what kind of a system we have 
when there are no standards, when there are no moats keeping behavior in place, when big money and dark money rule. Yeah, well, this is my concern. First of all, I conceptually agree. I think money overwhelms the system in ways that is that are really unhealthy. Uh, I guess my concern is that it seems like each reform creates a cottage industry for lawyers to find ways to circumvent sure. uh, the rules. And yeah. so in some ways, in our uh, zeal to make the system uh, uh, cleaner and more democratic, it, it, it has become uh, sneakier and harder to discern. Now, so a lot of that has to do with Citizens United, but not all of it. No. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm, I guess it's part of getting older. You, you know, you begin to see the downside of the upside. Um, and now I guess I, what I hunger for is just full disclosure. So at least we know where the money uh, is coming from. I would love to see some limitations. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? And given the current uh, construct yeah. of the court and... Um, it's another one of the uh, side effects uh, of uh, an election uh, where uh, we have Neil Gorsuch instead of Merrick Garland, um, where we might see a very different uh, uh, regimen in place. Now, I would agree with you that um, uh, we have loopholes everywhere. And it's not just Citizens United. Actually, uh, many of the decisions that f- uh, followed from that, the Speech Now decision uh, by uh, an appeals court that opened up the super PAC uh, loophole, uh, and uh, the McCutcheon decision where uh, Chief Justice Roberts basically said, corruption, anything goes, uh, unless it's of the abscam variety where you catch them on videotape. Take You're talking about McCon- the McConnell, uh, uh, McDonnell and the McDonald well McCutcheon was uh, uh, actually the uh, uh, campaign finance decision oh, yes, where yes, he yes, wrote yes. about, mm-hmm. and then the McDonald decision that flowed from that that mm-hmm. uh, basically uh, allowed more corruption. But you know, let's face it, this is also a problem of the Federal Election Commission, which, which is, uh, in mm-hmm. which Mitch McConnell has made sure that three Republicans on a six-member commission voted against any enforcement and did what they could to blow up any sense that there were rules in place. And so even the boundaries that existed, everybody out there knows you can do anything that you want. Now, I do think there are things that we can do, um, and uh, getting uh, rid of much of the dark money through disclosure would help. But I'm also very much uh, a fan of uh, having a multiple matching fund for small contributions that can level the playing field. And Such as they do in New York City. They do it in New York City in a six-to-one basis, and it works. Mm-hmm. And I'm very interested to see what will happen with this experiment in Seattle, where uh, they did a referendum uh, that brings in these so-called patriot dollars, uh, which is that every citizen gets $25 in a voucher. They're not transferable, and you can use it for any candidate or party uh, that you want. And that frees up small donations, and it means politicians will seek small donations and not just uh, march to the step of billionaires. There are ways within the Constitution, even as this conservative court has defined it, 
uh, to um, improve the system. But here, too, it's not like, uh, one, you can't get rid of money in politics, and we shouldn't. And the idea that if we could only have these $100 campaign contribution limits, everything would be wonderful is uh, But the utopian. degree to which money plays and the degree of time, the amount of time that our elected representatives have to spend raising it is in and of itself a corrupting factor in our politics. Yeah. I don't. We, yeah. I don't. I want to leave some yeah. time for some other yeah. uh, things. But, but but the one question I want to ask, and then I want to just talk about your the book that yeah. you've written with Tom Mann and 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 with EJ Dion, um, is you 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 described yourself as not a particularly partisan figure but you've been particularly tough on the Republican party yeah. you wrote a piece with man in uh, 2013 uh, and and you said uh, called let's admit it the Republicans are to blame uh, because there is this you do hear in conversations in academic circles and political circles well both parties are uh, are to blame but you you feel that the burden for the dysfunctionality in Washington rests more, much more heavily on the Republican Party. Explain that. So uh, Tom Mann and I did a book in 2006 called The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track. And it was, <clears throat> it was a lament. It was a lament that uh, Congress had lost its way. Uh, we wanted uh, something resembling what we call, the wonks call, the regular order, mm -hmm. where you have an open process, debate, deliberation. You uh, bring in the minority party. You also bring in rank-and-file members. There are all kinds but of But John ways. McCain was just talking about when he uh, yes. voted against the health care Law, yes, the health care appeal, uh, and at that uh, in that book, we blame both parties. Uh, both had contributed, and Democrats in the House, who had had a majority for forty consecutive years until nineteen ninety four, uh, had been arrogant and uh, not a little bit corrupt themselves. Uh, but it got much worse uh, with Gingrich and then Dennis Hastert. Um, by 2012, when we wrote the next book, uh, uh, and the uh, piece that you mentioned was an excerpt from that, uh, which we called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, right. it had become clear that uh, while the parties had polarized, the polarization was asymmetric, and the dramatic changes had occurred on the Republican side. And we saw that from the moment Barack Obama became uh, president, and we saw it uh, with um, the fact that on inaugural eve, uh, the Republicans uh, set their strategy of opposing in unison everything that he had proposed, delegitimizing him and delegitimizing all of that. Uh, and we were frustrated that the press corps um, basically took the tack that, oh, it was just as much his fault, he didn't schmooze with them enough, and he didn't reach out. And the Republican narrative, which was that they'd been steamrollered, simply didn't accord with the facts. Well, you you, uh, you, you remember the interview that Mitch McConnell did with E.J., uh, not E.J. Dion, but with uh, Adam Nagurney yeah. and Carl Hulse from the New York Times in two, early in 2010, January 2010, where he said, we, we just weren't going to give him the victory of bipartisanship because that was what he ran on. And uh, he said, if, if we do that, then people say, well, he must have figured it out. And it seemed to me that McConnell, who's very savvy, uh, was pursuing a, a strategy for getting 
Republican seats back and thought that it would be difficult to, to do that if they were seen as a governing partner with the Democratic president. And that was a change from what we'd had in the past. Now, it began with Clinton uh, and Gingrich. Um, And it was the strategy that Newt used in the first two years of Clinton to win the majority that uh, broke that 40-year stranglehold. But it was taken to a new level with Obama. And uh, I've referred to uh, McConnell as a ruthless pragmatist. Um, But many of the others were much more radical in their ideology. And many of them believed uh, what they heard about Obama. And uh, how much was race involved? It was a significant part of it, let's face it. And the birther movement was an uh, almost openly racist uh, way of trying to delegitimize uh, the president. Um, but it wasn't just race. And again, go back to when Cl- uh, Clinton became president. Remember, mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal was running editorials suggesting he'd been an accessory to murder over yeah. a drug deal gone bad when he was governor of Arkansas. So the uh, efforts- look, I, I'm as offended as anybody by the birther movement and some of the ra- racist motivations uh, that we saw, racial motivations in opposition to Obama. But as you point out, uh, the 90s were vicious. Yeah, and um, I think what happened is they discovered that a strategy of delegitimizing the president and delegitimizing the policies could work. But if you could add in race, then you've got icing on the cake. And it could work in ways that I suppose you could argue go back in some respects to the Southern strategy of Nixon, uh, but were taken to a new level with uh, with Obama. Uh But it was a party that also was, I think, degrading itself in other ways. The contempt for science, uh, the uh, willingness to bend and break the norms of the political arena were all things that we saw in 2012 when we wrote It's Even Worse Than It Looks. And when we revised it in 2016, we tinkered with the title to It's Even Worse Than It Was. And frankly, what we saw was the harbinger of what would become Donald Trump's moment. And you mentioned Merrick okay. Garland before the yeah. the refusal to give him a hearing or a vote uh, seems to me to be a uh, a watershed event along the road to dysfunctionality. And that was McConnell's approach, but we have to remember that every Republican in the Senate including those like Orrin Hatch, who had talked about how we need to have the regular order, who had praised Merrick Garland in the past, who had said, well, if you nominate somebody like that, of course we'll confirm him, went along with this unprecedented blockage. But go back before that, where the filibuster was used in ways that it had never been used before by McConnell uh, to stretch out debate to mm-hmm. using even uh, nominations that were going to end up being confirmed n- unanimously or near unanimously, bills in the same way, all so he could use up the floor time and degrade the process. Uh, this is a misuse or abuse of norms that but I've never seen before. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Norm Ornstein. The thing that wor- worries me norm is uh that this now becomes the norm and while it may be that the republican party is uh is 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 the uh sort of 
has the entrepreneurial instinct for the destruction of the process. Um, it also, you hear a lot of Democrats say, well, they did it, so we should do it too. And, uh, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote this seminal piece called Defining Deviancy Down. Uh, you normalize abnormal behavior. You normalize bad things. And there, I think, is a fair amount of that that's going to go on. But there's also a dilemma that I think Democrats face. Uh, the question is, if you behave in a good fashion, then the next time around, will they respond to that by saying, well, okay, we'll reform. Mm-hmm. So here's an example that would suggest to me that that won't work. Uh, over the previous two years, uh, the final two years of the Obama administration, uh, against the pressure of many of his own colleagues, Pat Leahy, the Democratic chairman of the uh, Judiciary Committee uh, in the Senate, continued to employ the blue slip, this process that was basically just a norm that nominees for the district court and in many cases for the Court of Appeals, uh, that the two senators from the state home uh, of mm-hmm. the nominee uh, could block a nomination unilaterally by not turning in a blue slip that would say move forward with it. And Republicans abused that uh, in many cases, uh, withholding their blue slips for people that they had nominated or those that had been a consensus uh, uh, around simply so they could keep the slots available just in case they won the White House. But Leahy kept it, believing that if he kept it, they would have to keep it. And now Charles Grassley, the Republican chairman so of the Judiciary Committee, that. has said, forget about it. So we are seeing deviancy defined down, and I don't know when we're going to be able to bring back some of the norms so of talk, behavior. So uh, t- give, me, give me one minute on your, on your book and what you and EJ and Tom Mann uh, believe we can do to revitalize our democracy. So uh, we have to start with an understanding that you can reform things, but if it's a cultural problem and a behavioral problem, the best you can do with reforms is to try and change the culture or the behavior a little bit. And uh, there are certainly ways in which we can improve the system. we can reform the filibuster to some degree. We can change the schedule that Congress uses. We can, uh, let's say just how, one how thing. How would that help? One thing that would help uh, would be if Congress moved to a three weeks in Washington, one week off every month, the three weeks, nine to five, Monday to Friday, you're going to get time for debate and deliberation instead of what is now Tuesday afternoon through Thursday noon. And if you say no fundraising calls during those 15 days of the month when you're in Washington, the other 15 do whatever you want, then you could have some impact on the process. We can improve the election system and the voting system. If we had our druthers, uh, the three of us, we would have the Australian system of mandatory attendance at the polls. You don't show up. You don't write an excuse. Uh, you pay a fine of roughly $15. They get 90% turnout from what used to be 50%, much like ours. And that, I think, would be robust and important. We can improve 
registration systems and make it easier for people to vote. We can move to weekend voting, uh, which would help, uh, I think, uh, very substantially. Mm -hmm. We can change the campaign finance system to bring in more small donors. Uh, But the fact is, at this point, uh, what we're going to need more than anything else is for a Republican Party in the majority to suffer a couple of resounding defeats to realize that an end justifies the means strategy just doesn't work so much, then maybe we'll get some uh, adjustment in the way our politics are done. Doesn't it look like that's going to happen this uh, in November of this year? Yeah, I think there is a very real opportunity for Democrats to have a wave election. I'm not sure it's going to be as big as the waves that Republicans were able to achieve. It can't be because the constraints uh, with gerrymandering and the, the, yeah. the luck of the draw on the Senate seats, there just isn't as much elasticity in the... No, and I think the other problem is, you know, we're now driven, as you know, by negative partisanship. It's not so much uh, people are tied to their own party as that they hate the other side and believe they're the enemy. And that may mean that Republican turnout, which you would think would be depressed because uh, it's such a disaster for them right now, might be higher than it otherwise would be. It could be, although they have work to do, because in, 19, in 2017 in both Virginia, yeah. uh, well, in, in the states that had regular elections, in Alabama, where there's a special election, and in special elections around the country, uh, uni- uniformly Democratic turnout has been much uh, inflated over what would normally be expected, and Republican turnout has not kept pace. Yeah, um, but you would hope if, if Democrats can take the House and even take the Senate, uh, that it will begin that process of change. Uh, the book is One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusion, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. So you're, you're, you're known for your pithy, pithiness, and that's a pithy <laughs> title. But I would be remiss if I didn't take uh, the last few minutes uh, to talk about something that um, binds us in a way, yeah. and, and, uh, and in a very sad way. Uh, you just observed the second anniversary Third. The third anniversary of the passing of your son. Um, talk a little bit about uh, about Matthew. So uh, my son Matthew was a brilliant uh, person uh, who was a national champion high school debater, uh, went to Princeton, uh, went to Hollywood and was doing well, and at the age of 24 had a psychotic break. And uh, then came a 10-year journey of struggle with mental illness, a part of which is what's called a nosognosia. Uh, It hits a very substantial number of people with serious mental illness, a part of the brain diseases you don't recognize you're ill. And if you're over 18 in this country, uh, there's nothing that parents or other loved ones or medical professionals can do if you won't accept any treatment. So he had enormous pain and difficulty. We as a family suffered immensely. And then at 34, he died accidentally uh, of a carbon monoxide poisoning, but it was really driven by the lack of judgment uh, caused by his mental illness. And you know uh, what happens when a family member goes through serious mental illness. You've suffered a grievous loss yourself. And I can tell you uh, there's nothing like losing a child. And we have, uh, it happened uh, January 3rd, uh, 2015, uh, and we have struggled since. 
and decided that we would try and pay it forward as a family. So we've created a foundation in his name, and we're working in two spaces. One, a very gratifying one that he would have loved, is uh, urban debate. Uh, the National Urban Debate League started in Chicago. It's a vibrant thing. It tries it's to wonderful, bring wonderful. public school kids into the debate world. I got to speak at one of their events here in Chicago yeah. uh, uh, last year, and it was uh, really, really moving. So we've funded uh, for three years now a Matthew Ornstein Summer Debate Institute for kids from the Washington area. Uh, we've had 250 kids come through. Uh, some of them uh, from now from sixth grade up through high school. Some of them arrive. They've never spoken in front of anybody before. By the time a week is up, they're up there vigorously debating, knowing something about a subject matter. It changes their lives. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have a, a tournament at the end of the month. Now we have uh, 60 schools involved in the area, and they do these tournaments. I'm hoping to get Michelle Obama to come to one of them. Um, and uh, it's just immensely gratifying. And the other is working in the space of serious mental illness, uh, which my son would have hated because he didn't think there was such a thing. It's certainly not for him. Uh, but we want to see what we can do to keep other families from going through what we've gone through. And our, uh, our big project now is to do a documentary about a remarkable judge in Miami-Dade, Florida, named Steve Leifman, who's completely transformed the way uh, this huge county, the seventh most populous in the country, with an enormous population of people with serious mental illness, the way the county deals with them. And he's managed to find ways to save lives and to save money at the same time and to get a lot of people back on a track where they can lead happy and productive lives. And we want to spread that word uh, around and change the way that police and judges and uh, the mental health community and system deal with those who have these terrible illnesses and especially those who don't recognize the real. Well, you're right that uh, I had my my own uh, challenge. I lost a parent. I lost a, my father to suicide at, too soon in in my life and his life. But that's not the same as losing a child. You expect at some point to lose a parent. You don't expect uh, to lose a yeah. child. But one thing I learned, Norm, from that experience was when I finally talked publicly about it 30 years after my father died— uh, I got this outpouring from people who were struggling yeah. with depression, struggling with mental illness, uh, and people who have survived uh, having uh, great losses like your own just saying thank you for talking about it. And, you know, mental illness continues to be so stigmatized in our society. We don't treat it like any other illness, as pervasive as it is. And so uh, just the act of... of of speaking out as you have and writing and doing the things that you've done, it seems to me, are helping move us down that road to where we can, where people will get the help that they need, and uh, where perhaps society will begin to look at this issue differently. I know you're here for the, uh, in Chicago for the Kennedy Forum. We're both speaking yeah. there uh, this week. Patrick Kennedy started this organization for just this purpose uh, to try and shine a bright light yeah. on mental illness he, illness he fought for mental health parity in the Congress and obviously went through his own struggles uh, just so important 
So, I, you know, I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, several months after Matthew died, and it was the most painful thing I've done. But there was finally a piece of legislation that was could be- possibly go through. It was a beautiful piece. And I decided I had to step up, and I have gotten this outpouring. And yeah. I continue to hear from people who say, uh, we're, we're having the same set of issues. What can we do? Uh, and it brings people out. Every family has been touched in some way by this, and most don't want to talk about it. Uh, and uh, if if we can recognize that it's an illness like other illnesses, it just happens to be a brain illness, and we start to treat it in a different fashion. You know, part of our frustration is if you have somebody who's got Alzheimer's, then uh, the family can say, treat this person. Uh, they don't know uh, mm-hmm. what their condition is. If you have a younger person who has a mental illness and you say, treat this person, he doesn't know uh, that he's ill, you get nothing. And that's got to change. And we have to balance civil liberties with uh, the ways Well, and, and a people. horrible legacy of the warehousing of people yeah. with mental illness. Uh, Real reasons why we changed the system the exactly, way we did. But oftentimes also, reform's we, gone exactly. uh, over the Exactly. Line. Well, one thing that strikes me just to just to close out this conversation is that we are a deeply polarized country. We tend to organize in tribes, red, the red tribe and the blue tribe. And then you come across things like this, mental illness, and uh, there are no partisan demarcation lines yeah. here. There are no class lines, although, as with all illness, uh, people, uh, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale tend to, tend to, to, uh, to bear a greater burden and get less yeah. uh, attention. Um, but it is a reminder that ultimately there is a common humanity that we share that is bigger than these things that spin us up so often on cable television and in the public discourse. And we ought to look for ways to solve these problems that can that will touch all of our lives. And let me just say, uh, perhaps finally, that uh, for a long time I just couldn't get back to engaging in trying to help our political institutions and our broader society. Um, but I wanted to write this book. It's even worse, uh, or the uh, One Nation After Trump, and enlisted EJ and Tom uh, because we face an existential threat right now to our, I think, our very values and our institutions. And uh, that's kept me going a little bit now, too. Well, Nora Mornstein, it's it's always good to be with you. Thank it's you. always good to read you. It's always good to hear from you. And uh, uh, it's it, it's good that democracy has champions like you to keep these issues in front of us. So great to be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.